0: Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde.
1: Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty, second hour of the program, second hour of the podcast. However you are engaging in the show or hearing the show, I appreciate you being a part of our audience. Also would love it if you could share this with friends. A lot of people out there have been kind of shocked out of uh, that uh, life they've been living on autopilot. You know what I'm talking about because most of us have been there at one point, right? Everything's great. Everything's c- cool. We're just cruising along, you know, we're maybe drifting with the current and we don't have to think too hard about things because because we don't. Nothing is, uh, is really that far off kilter to where we have to stop and reason, wow, should it be this way or... What should I think about this? What can I do? What are my options? Well, (laughs) in the last six weeks, I think we crossed a threshold where a lot of folks got jarred out of that wonderful sense of complacency. And and don't get me wrong. I love the idea of things being predictable. You know, things that that is, what was it? V for Vendetta. I love the comfort of routine. Not having to guess what's around the next corner. However... I also love being free. That means there's going to be some unpredictability. And unfortunately, this is what we have encountered. And a lot of people for the first time are really starting to question all this stuff going on around me. Is this necessarily what I'm being told that it is? And it's a really relevant question. And I and I say this not because I have all the answers. I will tell you, though, I have been paying very close attention, trying to learn what's going on and understand it for myself for at least the last 25 years and i'm far from being a work that's done okay i'm a work in progress however i feel a duty and i have i have encountered many people who are further ahead of me on this path who likewise have felt a duty to make sure that you are leaving a blaze on the tree or you're dropping breadcrumbs or at the very least shining whatever that flashlight or torch of truth is that you're carrying in such a way that the other people who are slogging their way out of that swamp of misinformation Have a sense of which way to go. Not that yours is the only way, but simply that there there is a path in this direction. We got to be patient with each other because we're not all in the very same place and we don't really need to be all in the same place. All we need is to be willing to help one another figure out what's going on and make sense of it. Now, with that in mind, we're going to spend some time this hour talking about how to recognize when you are being uh, being peddled narrative. Narrative is something that is not necessarily synonymous with reality. It's what you're supposed to believe. It's what uh, the news media, the mainstream media, as well as many political leaders uh, live for. And that's why they get so upset when when President Trump talks about fake news. How dare you suggest this is fake news? After all, we all agree with it, so how could it possibly be fake? But the bottom line is there are powerful interests, both elected and unelected, that want to influence how we see things, and the things they're telling us right now are getting pretty tough to reconcile with what our eyes and ears and our other senses are telling us. So I've got a great essay from Caitlin Johnstone. I'll share that with you coming up here in just a few moments. I also want to open up the phones. This is a chance for us to chat as well. 801-331-8113. Let's start by going to the phone. Hello there, and welcome to Loving Liberty.
2: Yeah, Brian, Sam calling. How are you?
1: I'm well. How are you, Sam?
2: Oh, not too bad. Um, just wanted to comment on the article you was reading from Pat Buchanan. Um, you know, everybody's making this out like this thing is so contagious and worse than the flu. You know, Brian, I have to date, I don't know one person in the area in which I live, certainly. You know, of course, I live in a rural area. But I don't know one person that has contracted this thing that everybody's talking about, this coronavirus. I still don't. And uh, now I know a lot of people have had stomach bugs, have had the flu, which would never shut the country down over. But I don't know anybody that has had the, um, this, this coronavirus. But what I do know is I'm seeing a lot of advantage being taken of it by a lot of people, both in government and people outside of government in high places that want to take us in a direction that we otherwise would never go. It's the typical never let a good crisis go to waste. One of the latest being Apple and Google collaborating on an idea to be able to track how close people are to one another by uh, software on their smartphones that would uh, dictate when they were breaching the six-foot limit of social distancing. You know, people should have trouble with that. I have trouble with the whole social distancing thing as it is anyway. We've always been smart enough in the past, Brian. When, I, when I've been sick, I stay home because, number one, I don't feel like being around people if I have the flu. Okay?
1: Right, right.
2: So, you know, we should be questioning why all this nonsense about social distancing and stuff. I mean, when you go into the stores like around here, you go into the... The Walmart, you go into the the farm store up here and various other places. Well, at least I don't know about the farm store. I haven't been in there. But there's another grocery store here called Save-A-Lot. They have these little tape strips on the floor dictating where you're supposed to stand to make sure you're you're six feet from one another. Okay, first of all, that's none of your business. Okay, if I'm with somebody, I'll stand as close to them as they and I agree to. As long as we're not in there doing hanky-panky or something, leave me alone. You know, it's called freedom. And uh, so that's the one thing. The other thing that uh, I'm having a heck of a time doing is trying to get a lot of the people that are only older, that are seniors, particularly around here, uh, to get the idea of what we're really dealing with as opposed to what they think they're dealing with in the media. And I've been trying to tell them, I said, the coronavirus is the least of your worries. You know, I pay a lot of attention to things like Ron Paul and various others are saying you know, if we get a if we get a, a collapse in this country, an economic collapse because of the, because of all the stimulus spending and everything else, uh, you're, the, the coronavirus is going to look like a, a picnic in the park, a child's play.
1: By the way, Sam, if I can confess. The economic collapse, I think, is not a matter of if. I think it's a matter of when, based on uh, the currency debasing that's going on, based on the incredible spending that can't continue. I think we're seeing an engineered destruction of uh, our currency, possibly setting the stage for some kind of uh, digital global currency. I don't know for sure. This much I do see, though. We are seeing the very beginning stages of what could be a food shortage. And something that's going to exacerbate that even more, at least here in Utah, where I live, earlier this week we had freezing temperatures, which uh, unfortunately took its toll on a lot of the fruit blossoms that had just started to break out. And there's a lot of other factors at play, but I'm more concerned about what are people going to do when they are really, truly hungry, not just limited, as to uh, whether you can go to the store for essential things or not. And and I hope we're thinking far enough ahead to, to be ahead of the curve on this.
2: Here's one of my favorite ones, Brian. I, I think this one, you know, if, if sometimes you have to just laugh at it because it's so stupid. You'll see people that'll get after one another for not doing social distancing, and their way to deal with it is walk up to the person that's not doing the social distancing and get within six feet of them, beat the crap out of them.
1: Yeah, that'll work. <laughs>
2: yeah, that works every time. I mean, wel- welcome to, um, you know, I hate to say this, and uh, I always preface this comment that I'm going to make on your show as well as on my show, if the shoe doesn't fit, please don't wear it because there are those out there that get it. I have some in my audience that get what's going on. I've run into them. And that's a good thing. That kind of helps me out a lot. But here's the thing I always uh, say, if the shoe fits, wear it. If the shoe fit, doesn't wear it. Uh, if the shoe doesn't fit, then don't wear it. And that is welcome to stupid North America where the, some of the stupidest things happen Around our country these days. I'm almost ashamed to admit I'm a part of uh, certainly certain parts of the country. I mean, uh, obviously, like I said, you know, you get it. I get it. There's A lot of people in my audience get it, but there's a lot who don't. And I'm trying my darndest to wake them up. And I hope we can, um, help hope uh, between all the protests we're starting to see, I don't know, did you see about the one in Michigan that happened recently? Yeah. People are really upset there. Yeah crazy out of control governor they got there i I hope they can get enough ammunition out there to recall her and i don't mean ammunition in the literal way i
1: mean understood yeah yeah we've got a pretty big one shaping up for uh, tomorrow evening in salt lake city near where i live and i'm i'm excited for it you know what's interesting is i'm seeing elected officials like from the governor on down now starting to soften their stance and well you know okay they're starting to realize the sleeping giant is waking up And the Sleeping Giant's pretty dang grumpy, if you just want to be honest about it. And it is not in the mood for another boot on its neck. And so they've backed off the whole, you will obey our dictates, especially uh, the mayor in Salt Lake City. Uh, But wow, it had to come to this. It had to come to the people, you know, organizing and standing up and and openly violating this directive or that directive to assert that, look, we have rights that we're not going to give away, even for the sake of feeling safe.
2: Oh, absolutely. And I always remind people all the time, if you look throughout history, any government that's ever taken more and more power very rarely, if ever, gives it back. So always understand that. It's up to us to stand up and take it back. I've even said if a lot of these businesses would all privately band together and decide on a certain day, we're all going to open about 100, 200, 300 of us, what are you going to do? Shut us all down? Then you'll look like fools.
1: Well said. Sam, thanks for your call. When we come back from the break here in a few moments, we're going to talk a little bit about how to recognize narrative, how to enhance your perception of reality. And, and that doesn't mean you have to agree with what I say is reality, but simply how to be aware when someone's trying to tweak your perception or bend your perception of reality. It's more important now than ever. And it's also, you know, gonna make some people really uncomfortable because, hey, who are you? You're not an epidemiologist. How dare you question what experts are saying? Yeah. Caitlin Johnstone has some great food for thought. It's on the way right after this. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Brian Hyde at your service. I'll be taking calls here a little bit later. I want to get through this uh, this piece from Caitlin Johnstone. It's titled, We Are Ruled by Wizards. And I want you to, to humor her on what she's trying to say here. Because her, her initial point is that bending reality is as simple as bending people's perception of reality. Now, she says, throughout history, the mythology of civilizations around the world has been full of tales of men and women who mastered a mysterious esoteric art which enabled them to use language in a way that bends reality to their will. They've been called wizards, witches, magicians, sorcerers, warlocks, or enchanters, and the utterances they speak have been known as spells, magic, incantations, conjurations, or enchantments. But the theme is always more or less the same a member of a small elite group with the ability to voice special utterances which shape reality according to their will in a way that transcends the mundane mechanics of this world. Now, she says people have long held a general intuition that language holds a power far beyond what ordinary mortals use it for, especially since the advent of the written word, which was long mysterious to all but the most elite classes in a given society. Back when people couldn't read. Now, this intuition has been spot on, though perhaps not exactly in the way that ancient mythologies have envisioned. She says, when I say bending reality is as simple as bending people's perception of reality. I'm not making some sort of mystical or otherworldly claim. I'm making a factual observation about the, uh, the influence that narrative control has over events big and small which transpire in our world. Many people whose brains lack a healthy empathy center, in other words, sociopaths, psychopaths and other narcissists, already understand this on some level she says human beings are storytelling creatures everything about our understanding of the world is made up of narratives that are made up of language my name's alice and i was born in detroit that's a narrative the universe is 13.772 billion years old is a narrative if i drink that bottle of bleach i'll probably die is also a narrative Now, narratives don't even have to be based on any objective fact at all. I can fly by flapping my arms is a narrative. God says you should mail me 10% of your income is a narrative. You live in a free democracy and everything you read in the New York Times is an accurate representation of reality. is also a narrative. She says ordinary people use language and narratives to understand and connect with each other. So they tend to favor narratives that are true. People who lack healthy empathy centers have no interest in understanding or connecting beyond the extent to which it can get them what they want. So they'll happily use lies or half-truths and distortions or lies by omission in order to obtain power, control, money, sex, or whatever it is they're after. They have a completely different relationship with language and narrative than people with healthy empathy centers. And they learn to exploit that difference. Now, maybe you'll, some of you will relate to this. She says, Anyone who has escaped from a relationship with a manipulator will have an experiential understanding of what I'm talking about here. You start off with the mistaken impression that the abusive partner uses language the same way you do. So you keep trying to use it to form an understanding and connection, but it's like your words just get turned around and twisted and used against you in ways you really can't keep up with. You're fed narratives about yourself which have no bearing on reality. You're crazy. You're not remembering things correctly. You're dishonest, or I'm not abusing you, you're abusing me. Etc. You're fed narratives about your abuser which have no bearing on reality. I'm the only one who'll ever love you. I'm too nice. That's my problem, or I'm the real victim here. Now she says when you escape from such a relationship, it's common to have to spend months or maybe even years afterward sorting out fact from fiction, reality from narrative distortion. Depending on the skill of the manipulator and how long you were with them, they may have inserted some very disorienting beliefs deep inside your consciousness in order to control you, and that can take a lot of work to uproot. Large-scale manipulation of entire populations works more or less the same way small-scale manipulations of individuals does. And unlike abusive partners who have to more or less figure out their infernal art on their own... There's been a concerted collaborative effort to refine the science of propaganda for well over a century. She says our world is set up in a way that rewards sociopathy with wealth and power, which means adept manipulators tend to rise to the top in business, government and media. And this is no accident. While ordinary healthy people were concerning themselves with learning the truth and forming connections, those in our world with no interest in such things have been engineering power structures to reward a lack of empathy. People who are willing to manipulate narratives toward their advantage without regard for truth or justice rise above those who aren't in such systems. By the way, one of the classic examples I can think of to illustrate this is a former BLM agent by the name of Dan Love. And what he did in setting up and trying to create a confrontation with the Bundy family over disputed cattle grazing fees. I don't think sociopath is too strong a word to use to describe the kind of behavior evidenced by Agent Love as well as others within his organization. Back to Caitlin Johnstone's point, though. She says, we now find ourselves, therefore, ruled by those who use language not to connect and understand but to bend reality according to their will. We're ruled, in a sense, by wizards. Vast troves of treasure are poured into controlling the dominant narratives in our society as they relate to those in power and what they want to achieve. The government is your friend. The newsman is trustworthy. You live in a democracy, and your countrymen can influence government policy and behavior by voting. That bad guy in that other country needs to be taken out. Those people telling you we're lying are Russian are Russian propagandists and need to be censored. She says the spells are cast. And before you know it, the bo- if the bomb, the bombers are deployed, the sanctions are implemented. The dissent is censored. The journalist jailed. The political leader has been installed. The consent has been manufactured. Reality has been bent simply using language to bend people's perception of reality. And the more powerful the government, the more skillful the wizards Noam Chomsky once said that any dictator would, would admire the uniformity and obedience of the U.S. media. Narrative spells are cooked up by wizards in opaque intelligence agencies and uncritically regurgitated in anonymously sourced news reports. And before you know it, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction, Russia's attacking American democracy, and China cooked up the coronavirus in a Wuhan laboratory. And as always, please know that the status quo is normal and totally working great for everyone. Now, she says the good news is that this kind of word magic is not only accessible to esoteric masters reciting incantations from the pages of a dusty grimoire, which interestingly has the same etymological root as the word grammar. Anyone who understands the malleable nature of of narrative is capable of fighting back against the enchantments which pull the wool over the eyes of the rank and file public day in and day out and can advance narratives based on facts and reality rather than lies and distortions. In other words, you can be a wizard too. You can use language to influence the world by pushing back against the narratives spouted by the establishment spellcasters. She says the better you understand the nature of narrative and its all-pervading role in our consciousness and society, the better a wizard you can be. Pay attention not just to the large-scale narratives believed by masses of people, but to the small-scale narratives believed by yourself as well. Find out what subtle stories you've been holding on to, even in the darkest recesses of your subconscious mind, which have been bending your perception of reality in a way which does not benefit you. If you want to master narrative wizardry, you must first attain mastery over its role in your own operating system. How do you do that? Here's what she recommends. Put truth first, always in all ways set the intention to use your healthy empathy center to connect and, to understand and to be honest with those to whom you speak and with yourself. She says, the more lucid you become in this way, the more potent your linguistic magic will grow. Narrative control is too important to be left to the manipulators, propagandists, liars, and sociopaths. See through the illusion. Shine truth on the lies. You're a wizard, Harry, says Caitlin Johnstone. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It definitely rings some of the right bells with me. And I think and I hope in a sense it reflects what I try to do here each day behind this little humble microphone. Recognize the narrative. And by the way, the hardest one is recognizing the ones that are rattling around in ourselves. I'll have this posted in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages.
0: Trusted Voices of Truth and Insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.
1: Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I'm opening up the phone lines again, 801-331-8113. I would love to hear from anybody who's planning to attend the uh, Utah Business Revival in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening. Or is it late afternoon? Anyway, you'll need to be down there by about 4.30. They will announce on Facebook the the location where people will be starting to safely and socially distance to gather. (laughs) I'm sorry. I I feel stupid for even having to, to say that. But I feel also like I need to throw this disclaimer out there just because there are so many busy little Karens out there just waving their fists in furious, impotent rage about how, how dare people do, how dare you not listen to what the experts are saying? No epidemiologist is calling a meeting out here like this. And I don't know, man, you know, maybe there was a time, I can't think of it if there was, but perhaps there was a time when I really believed that everything that every person from every system that sought to rule my life was absolute truth. I don't feel that way today. And I really don't feel like uh, it's, it's a safe path to take, considering how malevolent some of the, uh, the actions have been from the people, both elected and unelected, who are imposing these controls over our lives and and, and deigning to, to tell us who is essential and who isn't essential. What jobs are essential? What activities are essential versus what aren't? I'm sorry, you know, if, if this rubs people the wrong way, I'm, I'm just telling you this is my opinion It's exactly worth what you paid for it. But totalitarianism made a giant leap forward in the last few weeks. And it did it with almost nary a peep from any part of the American public. Now, that is starting to wear off and people have started to catch on and you're starting to see some pushback, which isn't it interesting? Isn't it fascinating how government has... uh, Suddenly, seen the light and is now benevolently telling us, "Well, you know, maybe what we ought to do is open things up, and uh, yeah, we should do. We should probably do that sooner than later." Yeah, that's uh, the the cows already got out of the barn here. You know, Ms. Governor or Mr. Mayor or you know whomever. People are ready to go back to work, and in spite of all those who are out there pronouncing, "Well, they're putting lives at risk by doing this," we understand the risks. Quite well by now. Maybe not perfectly, but but then again, do you ex- are you are you going to hold our health experts to the same standards? They didn't understand the risks either. Vastly overestimating how many people would be infected and on ventilators and dying in hospitals. So if you if you want to accuse people of not taking it seriously, or you want to say that well they're just doing it because they're greedy and they're putting the their economy and their pocket above other people's well being. Step off your freaking pity party for a few minutes and and hold your hand in front of your face. Now slap yourself hard. Do it a couple times and wake up and realize that we've all been paying attention. We've all been doing the best we can to to learn what we can, to apply the data that, that appears to be reliable. And the bottom line is, it appears that the social distancing measures are working. Not the lockdown, but just simply using precautions. If you feel like you're at risk, wear a mask, wear gloves, don't go out in public. Keep a safe distance, don't pick your nose, whatever it may be. I don't know, perhaps I, maybe I'm, I'm overreacting, but uh, if you want to rule my life, first of all, you're going to have to convince me that you can do a better job of it than I can. Good luck. You want to have a contest of wills to see who's better qualified to run my life? Let's see who's stronger. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead. I dare you. 801 I am encouraged by one thing that I have seen, and that is a lot of uh, governments have been admitting that certain regulations, in fact, a lot of regulations, really aren't necessary. Thank you, COVID-19, for forcing them into that position. Tyler Curtis, writing for Mises.org, says it's no exaggeration to say that most of the blame for the world's poor response to the coronavirus pandemic can be laid squarely at the feet of politicians and bureaucrats. You know, the ones who are going to tell us when it's okay, when it's safe to come out of our homes or not. Now, he says, even as it became clear that the virus was becoming increasingly dangerous, politicians around the world were quick to downplay its severity. The Chinese state attempted to silence those trying to broadcast warnings while American political leaders actually encouraged folks to go out and party in crowded public areas. And when coronavirus cases were finally confirmed within the United States, many realized that the burdensome regulations were preventing private firms from taking measures to fight the pandemic. Will those responsible face a reckoning for their massive failures? Now we can only hope. One thing that we did find, though, was that a lot of government regulators got in the way as innovative firms worked to develop accurate coronavirus tests or effective masks. The government fought hard to make sure private labs could not offer coronavirus tests at all. They were very territorial. In fact, the first positive test in the U.S. was conducted illegally as researchers became impatient, impatient rather waiting for the Food and Drug Administration to grant them approval. If his if his majesty would would allow, we'd like to to create this test weeks into the crisis. The FDA still was throwing up unnecessary hurdles, arrogating to itself the power to prohibit all testing without its express permission. That, my friend, is why you have to take with a grain of salt. The proclamations of those experts who would rule you and tell you, you must do this, you must do that under pain of penalty. They're just human beings like you and me. And yes, they are fallible. And yes, sometimes they get things wrong, too. And when they're being territorial and trying to do things in an effort to protect their power, that can compound whatever wrong they may already have engaged in. We'll come back to the article in a moment. Let's go to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show.
0: Yeah, Brian, I think you're right. I think these guys are getting a little out of hand in states like Michigan, California. These elected officials. They need to be put in their place. They need to be reminded who they work for and what their job is.
1: Amen. The question is, do they take it seriously, or are they just saying what they think the voters or the public wants to hear just to placate them? Okay, I hear you, and I understand. (laughs) But, uh, you know, in the meantime, it's business as usual.
0: Um, I'm sure it's going to be business as usual because the the bottom line is they're doing this to try to take our president out. You know, they want to collapse the economy. And this is a really sad display of how bad they want power and they want to control their agenda and they're willing to change your life, you know, for that. And they don't care about you. So kudos to all the people in Michigan. I think now, was, was it on your show that they said Saturday there's a demonstration here in the Utah State Capitol?
1: Uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if it's going to be at the state capitol, but in downtown Salt Lake, yes, at five o'clock tomorrow evening, there's going to be um I don't know that it's a demonstration it's more like a a rally of sorts just to support local businesses to get people out and back living their lives as they should
0: okay where where downtown is it
1: uh they won't announce the final location until around four thirty tomorrow afternoon. You can probably understand why. Since, since sure. Salt Lake County's mayor was encouraging people. Now, if you see something going on, you be sure to call our Fink line and rat people out.
0: Yeah, she's a little out of control, that Jenny Wilson. Um, she, you know, she actually came to my house before her campaign, and I guess she, after she got down with me, she realized she knocked on the wrong door. I think so. this is
1: actually Mayor of Mendenhall, so maybe it's a Salt Lake County mayor. Okay. But the bottom line is, yeah, it's, I mean, telling police you, you need to cite people. This is a Class B misdemeanor if they're out, you know, doing this. And from what I was reading, this was, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It was on KSL today. They were saying that uh, police say as long as people are using proper social distancing, they're not going to interfere. Well, isn't that generous? How how very kind of them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I kind of think they should just uh, back off because if it's, if I want to, start licking somebody's face that's going to be my decision not theirs Uh, anyway take it easy man have a great weekend love what you do
1: okay thanks so much for the call all right if you'd like to call into the show here's the number it's 801-331-8113 just that simple 801-331-8113 Coming back here to a moment, for a moment, rather, to this article from the Mises.org website. This is from uh, Tyler Curtis. COVID-19 is forcing governments to admit their regulations aren't necessary. And he gave the example of how the FDA actually stood in the way of effective testing, Rather than than letting people innovate. Well, now we've got to do this in the name of safety. But, you know, they can safety us right into an early grave. And that's that's a very sad consequence of, uh, well, what Dr. Brian would diagnose as too much government. As Tom Rogan reported in the Washington Examiner, one company had more than 20 pallets of coronavirus-specific medical supplies waiting in a warehouse for five days. At another depot in South Central U.S., there was the same supplier had 500,000 Level 3 or Level 4 masks sitting in a warehouse for a couple of days. But the FDA delays them getting those supplies where they need to go because their inspectors have to give their stamp of approval. I mean, it's not like somebody in the private sector could do this reliably, right? All right, we've got to take a very quick timeout. We'll be back with your calls. Just the other side of these messages. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I really do hope that I get to see and I don't know if I can say shake hands. Maybe I'll just give you a big hug if you uh, come to, <laughs> to the uh, Utah Business Revival tomorrow. Hugs are optional. We could uh, we could bump elbows or something like that. I don't know. Maybe there's some kind of a secret wave we could do to each other. But I, I appreciate uh, all those who will make the effort to be there. And I'm looking forward to being there myself uh, just because I, I just... Look, I don't want to cause trouble. I just want to stand up and and assert that, look, I am a free man and I am not going to allow my rights to become some, you know, token that is given to me based on whether government thinks I'm being a good boy or not. I know where my rights come from and they do not come from government. So I hope that that message comes through loud and clear. And those of you who are registering disapproval, well, I hope you can come and stand and make frustrated noises and frowny faces at me, you know, from a safe distance, of course, for daring to not live in fear. Something tells me I'm going to have some pretty good company. So looking forward to it back to the idea of regulations. Why they're here to protect us, except they really got in the way of a lot of the things that could have been helping to address the pandemic as it started to unfold. Now, the stories that I was sharing with you from this article on the Mises Wire from Tyler Curtis are enough to make your blood boil. But he says there are some indications that as the crisis has grown, both federal and state governments have been willing to waive some of their overbearing regulations. For instance, Massachusetts granted temporary licenses to nurses who were already licensed in other states. Other states quickly followed suit. And before the crisis began, just three states had automatically licensed doctors and nurses who held out-of-state licenses. That would be Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Montana, which decided to grant them on a permanent rather than temporary basis. Several other states also moved to suspend their so-called Certificate of Need laws, which require healthcare care facilities to receive government approval before establishing or expanding their services. As Vittorio Natasi at the Reason Foundation writes... Ample research suggests that con laws or certificate of need laws increase costs and reduce access to care by limiting competition and supply. So relax, relaxing the scope of practice laws has been helpful and it's gone a long ways towards making coronavirus testing and treatment more efficient. Now, unfortunately he says uh, many of these regulatory reforms are temporary and although all of them should have been enacted before the pandemic began It was the pandemic that allowed deregulation to be politically possible. Expediency took place over, you know, the rigors, but this is written down here, so therefore, you know, we have to do what these words on the paper on this clipboard say. But it's also a possibility that these forms, uh, this may be the reason why never have, ne- some of them never become permanent. See, the vast majority of state governors and federal regulators responsible for the deregulations have justified them, not by any prior commitment to advancing liberty, but just by the fact that this is a necessity to counteract the pandemic. Once the coronavirus threat has been sufficiently mitigated, it's pretty unlikely that most of these politicians and bureaucrats will tolerate emergency deregulations becoming the new normal. Unless, of course, the citizenry stands up and makes sure that they understand this is something we support. Even then, it may be kind of an uphill battle, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't be undertaken. Non-medical deregulations are likely to face even more scrutiny once the crisis has passed, particularly those related to food and adult beverages. Now, Governor Abbott of Texas recently waived a curious law, which prohibited truckers carrying groceries from also carrying alcohol. Boston is now allowing nearly every restaurant to offer carry out without a license. And throughout the country, state and local authorities have issued orders permitting restaurants to offer alcohol with takeout and delivery orders. Somehow I'm guessing Utah is behind on this one, but OK, so be it. But the author here points out that even these somewhat small and sensible measures have faced criticism. Tyler Curtis says it is, of course, entirely possible that the coronavirus will create a lasting paradigm shift toward more liberty and fewer government controls should public outrage at the deadly failures of bureaucracy and petty regulatory prohibitions be loud enough this pandemic could wind up being the catalyst for significant institutional reforms which libertarians have been advocating for for years but he does warn don't hold your breath okay i think that's a fair way to approach it now there's also a great article on the atlantic.com This is from Paul Sherman. Unlicensed haircuts are only the beginning. And can I just see by a show of hands uh, how many people, besides myself, are sporting an unlicensed haircut at this moment? Ooh, that's a surprising number of hands going up. Or at least I'm I'm seeing that in my mind. By the way, those who do show up to the uh, uh, Utah Business Revival thing tomorrow, um, I may or may not be wearing a hat you know, with a face net and a face mask and a germ-resistant helmet. So you won't have a chance to admire my unlicensed haircut, but I want to tell you, it's a really good one. You're just going to have to take my word for it. Actually, I want to share with you a little excerpt here from from this article from The Atlantic. And again, this is from Paul Sherman. He is from the American Institute for Justice, which is one of the great organizations out there defending freedom. And one of the things that he points out here is that It is tough for people to find work. Now, now keep in mind, unemployment numbers went up by, what, 22 million in the last three weeks. One of the things that is going to happen when the economy is back open for business is those who want to engage in business are still going to have regulatory hurdles to to jump over, including what are called barriers to entry, licensure, occupational licensure. And it's going to be interesting to see how this will affect those unemployment numbers. He says history teaches all too well that expansions of power, like we have just seen are rarely reversed when the crisis that precipitated them abates. So although our current situation requires rapid action, he says it's both better and safer to make changes through ordinary legislative and rulemaking processes. That is good advice. Don't do everything based on crisis. And he says those States that do choose to reexamine things like occupational licensure won't lack targets. Now, to put this in perspective. Did you realize that in the 1950s, only one in 20 American workers needed a license from the government in order to work in their chosen occupation? One in 20. Do You know what that number is today? It's one in four. And it's growing. Laws that were once aimed solely at doctors and lawyers now encompass everyone, including florists in Louisiana, casket sellers in Oklahoma, and even interior designers in Florida. And as people in lockdown take clippers to their own shaggy hair, they're learning that cuts from unlicensed stylists are not a health hazard, even if the results underscore the wisdom of leaving the job to a market-tested professional. So when you see a bad haircut, that's not proof that we need more government. It just means that it should be easier for a person to get into the market and and learn those skills. And by the way, there used to be a thing called guilds that would help to ensure the quality of a particular type of profession or a type of of work. Those things could still very much work in our day. But just remember, when, when government wants to regulate this kind of stuff, it's not so much a matter of, yes, you have to show this basic competency. That may be part of the thing but the but, the biggest reason for that government licensure is because we need our cut. there's a tax, there's a fee that's associated with it, and once you paid that fee, even if you're a hack, even if you give you know horrible bowl cuts, government's going to be okay because hey, well, you paid your fee, you must be good enough now, the consequences of this uh, proliferation are significant, says Paul Sherman. He says basic economics predicts that competition reduces prices for consumers. Occupational licensing works directly to stifle competition. University of Minnesota economist Morris Kleiner, a leading researcher on occupational licensing, estimates that licensing costs consumers nearly $200 billion annually. Now, that might be justifiable if licensing produced substantial improvements in quality. But do you realize most research has failed to find a connection between licensure and service quality or safety? In one study, for example, Dr. Kleiner found that the differences in state dental regulations, for instance, whether it was easy or hard for out-of-state dentists to start practicing, had absolutely no effect on the dental health of incoming Air Force personnel. Now, believe it or not, back in 2015, the Obama administration released a study on occupational licensure, which concluded that states, when regulating professions through licensing laws, had often failed to consider the costs and benefits But states no longer have the luxury of ignoring the cost of occupational licensure in health care. So Paul Sherman says when this pandemic ends, states reexamination of barriers to work should not, nor should it be limited to a single industry. The licensing reforms being enacted now, though forced upon the states by necessity, are not new ideas. They were good ideas before COVID-19. They're good ideas now, and that means they will continue to be good ideas even when this crisis passes. I don't know if you're one of those people whose job depends on having a current license in order to do whatever it is you do. But this might be something you would want to consider putting some support behind, and that is roll back the depth and the breadth of that regulation. Make it easier to work. Yes, you might lose a little bit of prestige, but you'll also keep a little more money in your pocket that you're not paying to the state for its permission to carry around that license which is essentially taking a ride away from you and then selling it back to you for money. Hey, I look forward to seeing as many of you as possible at the event tomorrow in Salt Lake City. Be safe. We'll see you there.